We read scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will read the first 23 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, and then we turn to chapter 11, and we read verses 23 to 30 of that chapter. We hear the inspired word of God here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And it all eat the same spiritual meat, and it all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. He cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. He cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Then we turn to chapter 11, and we begin reading at verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Days 29 and 30, found in the back of our Psalters on pages 17 and 18. Question 78. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed by God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ. Though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul, the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Christ speaks thus, not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. But more especially by these visible signs and pledges, to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass, at bottom, is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. 
and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the main concern of Lord's Day 29 is to answer a very practical and important question. How does the sacrament of the Lord's Supper work? And it gets at the fact that it works in a spiritual way, not in a physical manner. How does the Lord's Supper become a means of grace? In what way am I and are you nourished with the body and blood of Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper? And the point is... This is a spiritual operation in which we're fed spiritually. It's not some kind of a magical experience that takes place for everybody who partakes, but rather it's a wonder by the operation of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's children as they partake by faith. Now because the sacrament involves a spiritual operation, then the question is how and who ought to come to the table? How ought it be guarded? Who ought to come? And that gets at Lord's Day 30 then. We must come with a right perspective. Important it is for us to examine ourselves and then to come in a manner that reflects our love for God and our delight in the things of his kingdom. And so we look at this Lord's Day, the spiritual partaking, noting first of all the corruption of the supper, as that's laid out especially here in question and answer 80. Secondly, the spiritual operation And finally, the careful partaking. Question 80 gets at the heart of the problem that the Reformed Church has found with the Roman Catholic Mass. Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Now we read those statements of the Heidelberg Catechism and we're inclined to think that can't be true. That's so extreme. It's so remarkable. We can hardly believe that such a large body of people professing to acknowledge God and professing the Bible as divine revelation would subscribe to something such as this error. The painstaking particularity at which the Council of Trent, which is the Roman Catholic Synod that met and established this error, the carefulness with which they do so allows no room for charity. And it's important that we quote a bit from that document. The Council of Trent established the Roman Catholic dogma of the Mass. And they insisted that the whole substance of the bread is turned into the body and the whole substance of the wine is turned into the blood, which change the Catholic Church calls 
transubstantiation. Continuing to quote from the decrees of Trent, If anyone denies that there is contained in the most holy sacrament of the altar, truly, really, and substantially the body and the blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the entire Christ, if anyone say that he is contained therein only in a symbol or a figure or a virtue, let him be accursed. Continuing the quote, If anyone says that there remains in the most holy sacrament of the altar the substance of the bread and wine together with the life and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if he denies that wonderful and miraculous transformation of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood, while there remains only the form of the bread and wine, which transformation is termed by the Catholic Church, transubstantiation, let him be accursed. The doctrine, therefore, that they make explicit is that at the very moment that the priest speaks the words, then this wonder takes place. The priest says, Hoc es corpus meum. And immediately at that moment, the bread is no longer bread. The wine is no longer wine. Now, the Reformed churches reject this teaching for the number of reasons. First of all, it has no foundation in Scripture. The contention is that when Jesus took that bread and when he took that wine and he said, with regard to the bread, this is my body that is broken for you. And he said concerning the cup, this cup is the New Testament in my blood that by Jesus using that language, he meant immediately now that bread is changed and immediately that wine is changed. We deny that Jesus meant anything more than the bread is a sign. It symbolizes. And the wine symbolizes. He was insisting these are signs of my body, signs of my blood. Therefore, representative of them with those signs. So that Jesus was using figurative language to express a spiritual truth. And he often did that. When Jesus said, I am the door, Jesus didn't all of a sudden change into a door. When Jesus said, I am the vine, he didn't imply or mean to say, I have changed into a literal vine. Jesus was speaking figuratively. And so also in the context of the administration of the Lord's Supper. But secondly, the chapters that we read, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 10, stand contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. Here Paul, in verses 26 and 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, calls the elements, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, he calls the element bread still, after they had been consecrated by the formula of the pastor or the priest. Rome says if anyone says that there remains in that most holy sacrament of the altar, that is in the elements, the substance of bread or the substance of wine, let them be accursed. Paul himself says the bread remains bread. There's still in this bread the substance of bread. And therefore, the Apostle Paul now 
contradicts Trent and is anathema according to their judgment. When Jesus and the apostles, by the inspiration of the Spirit, call the bread bread after Jesus has handed it out and after Jesus has distributed it and after Jesus has spoken the words, they then also would be guilty of the same anathemas. Jesus and the apostles make clear that there's a spiritual operation here. Jesus did not turn himself into the wine or the bread, but rather they represent the blessing spiritually that he accomplished through his atonement. And by faith, we lay hold upon that wonder. Continuing the error of the Roman Catholic Church, the living and the dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. If there's no transubstantiation, that is, no change of the elements, then there can be no offering of Christ either, as is pretended through the Mass. So that the second teaching, the offering of Christ, is dependent on the first. The bread and the wine change into Christ's body and blood. And now Jesus is literally offered up again in their estimation. He not only is able to be worshipped through those elements because they now are him, but also they are offered up as an atonement for sin. Now the sacrament cannot be a sacrifice because it was ordained by God to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This do in remembrance of me. That is, look back and remember this event. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. That's important. The Mass now pretends to be a repetition, not a memorial. The Mass pretends not to look back, but the Mass pretends now to repeat what Jesus did on Calvary. Jesus never said anything about repeating the sacrifice that he had made on Calvary. Our trust and our confidence is in the one sacrifice that he offered up on Calvary. And that's our hope. And that's our salvation. Never in the Bible is there anything that would lead us to say that Jesus' one sacrifice was not sufficient. Or that would lead us to say that we somehow need to put our trust in another sacrifice or seek another sacrifice. Any additional sacrifice would be a denial of the sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If Jesus enters physically into the sacrament, it would be necessary also that he would come down from heaven then somehow to earth physically. In other words, their emphasis is Jesus is physically present in this bread and in this wine. Jesus told us when he ascended into heaven that he would go away. And what did he say? He would come again, but he would come again through his spirit. He would come spiritually. And when again would he come physically? Only at the end, when he would return on the clouds of heaven to bring his children to be with him. So that the mass insists that Jesus then is a liar 
Because Jesus isn't just coming spiritually, Jesus is coming physically every single time that the Mass is conducted. Now, the repetition of the Mass as a sacrifice is a denial of the perfection and sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's also a contradiction of the testimony of the apostles in the Scriptures. And we're familiar with that. Just think especially of the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is devoted to using the strongest of language to emphasize Jesus Christ is sufficient. And his one sacrifice is sufficient. The Levitical priests, they had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Many offerings for sin. But then Jesus came. And what did he do? He offered the one sacrifice that was necessary for the salvation of of sin. And Hebrews 9 verses 11 and 12 emphasize that. Jesus Christ did what no one else could do. As the high priest, he entered into the sanctuary and he gave himself as that one sufficient sacrifice necessary. There's no more sacrifice needed. The mass cannot be a sacrifice. To say that it is is a denial then of the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Beloved, from this we learn how crucially important it is to remain faithful to the Word of God. And we see the fundamental danger of departing from the simple teaching of God's Word and the doctrine of the cross. If we start straying from the sufficiency of Scripture and we start coming up with our own ideas, our own wisdom... There's no limit to the absurdity, the heresies into which we will walk. We need to be thankful to God for the truth that God has given us. Thankful for the clear testimony of the Bible and for the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary of which the holy sacrament is a sign and a seal. And we come to the table then with the understanding of who we are by nature who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and with a thankful heart. And we recognize that the activity that's taking place here in the sacrament is spiritual. It's not physical. And that's emphasized, especially in Lord's Day 29. We read in question 78, Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? And the answer is not at all. The catechism opposing that error of transfiguration establishes clearly and repeatedly there's no physical operation. The operation is spiritual. The Roman Catholics again teaching that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. We agree. Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. But they saying he's present physically. And we insist no. He's present spiritually. And they're emphatic, insistent. There has to be a physical presence. We've already made that pretty clear, but just to make it even more clear from the Council of Trent, after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the species of those sensible things. Christ, whole and entire, is under the species of bread and wine 
and under any part whatsoever of those species. Likewise, the whole Christ is under the species of wine and the parts thereof. So permanent it is that after the pronouncement of the priest then, that bread and wine can be worshipped. We just read in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee idolatry. And so we reject again that physical concept that just physically Jesus is there and anybody who partakes then somehow physically benefits from Christ and his presence. Now anyone who denies that physical change and that physical presence and the permanency of that change and the validity of worshiping bread and wine, all of that which we reject is again declared by Rome to be anathema, cursed by God outside the kingdom and outside the church of God. Even though the Roman Catholic Church in later years has tried to soften that a bit, that's their perspective with regard to you and with me. We are outside the kingdom, we're anathema because of our refusal to acknowledge Jesus' physical presence. And so serious this is for them that they withhold then the wine from certain people in the church. Only the wafer is given, and that only very, very carefully, because they believe the passing of the communion cup might result in some of the wine being spilled. And if it was spilled, then the blood of Jesus Christ, they claim, would be profaned. And so the priest decided the cup should not be passed around. We don't want to take that chance. So that the simple, beautiful institution of the Lord's Supper is by them then profaned. Jesus did not say, eat, merely. He said, also, drink. And those words then are denied. This position of the Roman Catholics teaches a lie. It's a violation of the ninth commandment. As they teach something that doesn't happen. God does not so confuse our senses as to give us something that looks like bread, tastes like bread, that looks like wine and tastes like wine and smells like wine, but isn't. If it looks like and tastes like and smells like, it is. God doesn't deceive our senses. But the most important problem here, and that we want to get get at this morning, is this. The position of Rome presents God's grace in physical things. God's grace is found in things. It's found in bread. It's found in wine. So that you eat the bread, you drink the wine, you get grace automatically. You eat more, you get more grace. If you don't, you don't get grace. God's grace is never applied in such a literal, mechanical manner. Our controversy, therefore, with Rome is not something that's outdated. It's not something that is ancient. God's grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what's at stake. Are God's grace and is Christ's righteousness found in physical things? So that the more of those physical things we get, the more we know righteousness and the more we know grace? If that's the case, then, a wicked, reprobate man who's apart from Christ gets righteousness gets Jesus' righteousness and gets God's grace when they partake of the sacrament. Automatically they get it. And then God sends them to hell. It does them no good. So that the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the grace of God are powerless. 
That's not the teaching of Scripture. The gracious operation of God is by His Spirit in the hearts of His children. It's not a physical operation. It's a spiritual operation. And that's our confession this morning. And that's the spirit with which we partake then of the Lord's Supper. The sacrament indeed involves an operation. Christ indeed is to be eaten and drank. But it's spiritual. And faith is the bond that unites us to Christ. And faith is that spiritual mouth by which we eat and we drink Christ. That's the emphasis of the confessions. It's a truth that's laid out throughout the scriptures. And it's that which Jesus taught when he instituted this sacrament. God has taken us and he's made us one with Christ. What a wonder that God has united us to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith. And that's a mystery. We can't fully understand the wonder of it. How is it that I'm able to know union with Christ and that I'm able to know that I am flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17 here Express that, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. We're one with Christ. We're united with him. Now faith reveals itself in activity. God takes us and he joins us to Christ. That's the bond of faith. Then we talk about the fact that faith now bears fruit in our lives. And what is that fruit? We become active. The activity of faith is evident. We trust in God. We know Him. We lay hold upon the truths of His Word. When we talk now about faith in connection with the Lord's Supper, we're talking there about the activity of faith. We're talking about the wonder that God has taken us and joined us to Himself by a true and living bond. And now the fruit of that union is that we lay hold on Him. We trust in Him and we pursue His will in what we do and what we say. God nourishes us unto everlasting life by working that gift of faith and then causing that faith to be active in our lives so that we hunger after God, we thirst after Him, we seek Him, we pursue Him. The activity of faith is necessary to receive spiritual nourishment. Faith needs to lay hold on God, lay hold on the Word of God, lay hold on Jesus Christ. Confess and believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and he's my Savior. That activity of faith is such that when we take the bread, we're not thinking about bread. We're thinking about our union to Christ and how when we eat that bread, that bread so is assimilated into our body that there's no possibility of discerning the difference between us and Christ. What a wonder that bread becomes part of us just as we are united to Christ by a wonder of God's goodness and God's grace. And so by faith, we lay hold upon the elements. By faith, we eat and we drink. And we do so in connection with our astounding belief that Jehovah God has taken me a sinner and has united me to Jesus Christ so that I am His and I belong to Him. And nothing can separate me from that union, that bond. Now, as we go through life, we struggle. We wonder about that. Doubts rise up. And so God gives us then the preaching and the sacraments to remind us, this is who you are. You are not your own. 
You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Joined to him by a true and living faith. And you are to draw your life out of him alone. In order for us to live out of Christ, there needs to be life within us. In other words, no one can partake by faith apart from God first establishing that union. God joins us, and then our response now is to come, to eat, to partake by faith. God works the desire for the preaching. He works the desire for the sacrament. He works the desire for Christ and to know him as our Lord, our Savior. This operation that Jesus performs by his Holy Spirit within us is not something we can fully comprehend. There's a mystery. There's a wonder here. Just as we confess that Jesus is present through the preaching and that his spirit applies that preaching in ways that the minister can't even fathom, can't even understand. So Jesus Christ is present in the sacrament. And that's a wonder. And he's the one then who spiritually then speaks to us. We respond with obedience. He says, eat. We eat. He says, drink. We drink. And we don't do it with just our physical mouth. We're doing it by faith as we lay hold upon Christ and all his benefits and delight in him. And so that's why the catechism says our souls are fed unto eternal life. Just as we can't live without earthly food, so we can't live without spiritual food. And that spiritual food is evident here in the sacrament as God feeds us with grace. The spiritual nourishment we need, we need Christ. We cannot live apart from him. It's pointed out here in 1 Corinthians 10. In the words that we read there, as it's talking about the children of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. And it's not just talking about manna and talking about water. What's it talking about? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So that God was at work already in the wilderness there, moving in the people of God to cause them to see that they needed not just that their sandals wouldn't wear out, they didn't just need bread and water, they needed God, and they needed Christ. And so by faith, they lay hold on that wonder, as not all we know in terms of the people of Israel, but those who were gods, those who were God's children, laid hold upon the wonder of Christ and the salvation that was theirs in him. And so this history in the Old Testament is recorded for our instruction and our admonition. Israel rejected Christ again and again. Not all who ate were truly fed. Some of them ate and they were killed with plagues while the flesh was still in their teeth. They were not getting grace or strength simply by eating. More was necessary. A spiritual perspective that was lacking. And so Christ is that spiritual food and he works in us that spiritual hungering and thirsting. And he imparts himself through his word. He imparts himself through the sacraments. And he gives us the broken bread, the poured out wine, as our means of eating and drinking Christ by faith. And so our regenerated hearts long for and desire Christ. We need him. We cannot live apart from him. 
There are times when we think we can, don't we? To our shame. We think, oh, I don't really need to read the Bible. I'm going to be fine. I really don't need Bible studies. I really don't need the Lord's Supper. I really don't need the church. I'm fine. I don't really need to come to church even regularly. Such can be the proud spirit that takes hold of us. And then we need to hear the admonition of verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. You are dependent creatures, and you need Christ. And we need him. And we need Christ as he comes to us through the means that God has ordained. That spiritual aspect of our spiritual nourishment needs to be sustained. And so we partake by faith, and we lay hold upon the wonder. Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. John 1, verse 16. We read, Who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We lay hold on Christ and the wonder of that sacrifice on our behalf. We do so carefully. And that's the emphasis, especially of Lord's Day 30. It's the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and the apostles, to exclude such persons. Question 82. So the catechism there is talking about the confession of individuals and their walk. The church is called to judge individuals on the basis of their confession and walk. Now that's not a personal judgment. It's a judgment that's made on the basis of God's word. And therefore it's a godly judgment. There's a close connection between confession and walk. A true confession is going to show itself in a sanctified walk. A sanctified walk is going to be motivated and flow out of a true confession so that doctrine and life are inseparable. The Word of God warns again and again against heretics, against false teachers. And it warns that the church may not harbor those false teachers, may not harbor those who are holding to false doctrines in the church. The motive of the false teacher is not love for God. It's not love for the truth. It's covetousness. It's a desire to use the people of God and even abuse them. And that false doctrine denies Christ. That false doctrine shows itself in a life of corruption and sin. Those who walk in sin hate the truth. The truth condemns them. And so they do everything in their power to overthrow it or to avoid it. They who by their walk and by their confession show themselves to be unbelieving and ungodly, may not be allowed to partake. And the elders are called then to supervise the table. We call that close communion. There's open communion, letting anybody come. There's closed communion, that is limiting it only to members of the congregation who are confessing members. And then there's close, which is supervised communion. We hold to close, that is we don't limit it merely to our congregation. We allow others also to partake with us. But that which is required is the elders' involvement and their supervision. Obviously, a consistory, the elders, can't know the heart. But if someone makes a good confession and they're not living according to it and they partake, then it's going to be on their own conscience. The sin and the guilt is on them. Those who are not willing to maintain a godly walk and a godly confession ought not come to the table at that point. They must repent first. They must turn. And if they refuse, must be barred from the table for their own good in order to see the seriousness of their sin and the need for repentance.
all those who are willing to eat with those who are not living in obedience bring God's condemnation on their own heads. Now there's times when that happens when we're not aware of it. That is different. But if we knowingly partake with those who are walking openly in sin, God's judgment then comes upon us. And so not only the church, but every believer is called to examine our hearts. The spiritual food and drink becomes ours so perfectly that we are able to confess. In the last part of answer 79, we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by our mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him. And that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. That's an astounding statement. And as we wrestle with our sin and as we know Christ and the wonder of what Christ has done for us, this is the truth that God impresses upon us. God works in us the faith by which we believe that Jesus made atonement for my sin. And he did so so perfectly that God now looks at me as if I had never committed any sin. He views me as righteous in Jesus Christ. As we consider that, as we think upon that, we're pricked. We're moved to greater obedience and greater thankfulness. We're prompted to see our sins more fully, to confess them to a greater measure. And we're brought to our knees to say, I don't deserve this. I'm a partaker not by anything of myself, but by grace alone. And God enables us more and more then also to keep the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So there's a necessary spiritual perspective that's evident as we partake of the sacrament. Just any person doesn't receive spiritual nourishment who comes, but believers come to the table. And even believers need to come with the right spirit and the right attitude. We're not always ready either to partake of the sacrament. We need to be spiritually healthy. Our spiritual health is determined by a sincere, heartfelt sorrow for sin, a fervent longing for forgiveness, and for the grace of Jesus Christ, and by an earnest desire to live in sanctification and holiness. It's only in that spirit, in that frame of mind, that we expect to receive the spiritual blessings of the supper. For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death. That's our confession. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and following, which we read, expresses the necessity of that self-examination for the partaking of the table of the Lord. The church at Corinth was not doing that. They were allowing people to come who should not have been coming. They were profaning the sacrament by the manner in which it was being administered. They were keeping the poor away. They were letting others come who shouldn't have been coming. So God, by his Spirit, gives us, through that experience, instruction as to how we are to walk and how we are to live and how we are to come to the table. The table is for believers. And that's evident from the fact that only believers can really examine themselves in the manner that's set forth here. The self-examination requires faith. And it 
implies faith. The believer who is implanted to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith knows Jesus is living in me by his Spirit. And Christ enlightens him and enables him to see his sin. Christ enables him to confess that sin. Christ works in him the desire to will and to do according to God's good pleasure. As a believer, by faith then, we make use of the criteria that God gives us. And we spend time in the word and in prayer examining our hearts. We realize in this life we have but a small beginning of new obedience. The heart of the believer has been transformed, radically changed, so that we have that new dominating power of new life that's within us. We are new creatures in Christ. And that new life has dominion. We confess that. It reigns even over our sinful nature and our sinful walk. And evidence of that is that the believer is someone who's sorry for sin, fights against sin all their life long until death. And so in my examination, in yours, what is it that we have to do? I look at my personal life. I look at my words, my conduct, my actions, my looks, my gestures, my attitude toward God and fellow men and women. And I need to examine myself in my relationship to my family, to my spouse, to my children, my siblings, my parents. And I must examine myself in relation to the world around me, the government, my employer, my employees, in my business, the course of my interaction and relationship with the members of the congregation. And that examination is going to follow the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. Do I know my sin in all these relationships, and am I confessing it? Or am I saying, I'm without sin, the fault is with everyone else. If I'm seeing sin in everyone else, but refusing to partake, to repent, then I need to repent. I need to recognize I'm a sinner, chief sinner even. Am I abhorring myself because of these sins? Do I see the deep seriousness of this sin as it's against Jehovah God? And am I sorry for it? Now, we're never going to be sorry enough. Our sorrow is never going to be deep enough. But our sorrow needs to be evident. I am sorrowful for my sin. And I am walking in a spirit of repentance. And I confess those sins before God not only. I'm willing to confess them also to my spouse, my children, my parents, my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Doing so, I trust my sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to make atonement. I'm not trying to make payment. I can't. Jesus Christ has done it for me. And there's a conscious knowledge then of the wonder of that sacrifice that he made, that atonement that I could never make, that he's the only way of escape and that through him alone, is my salvation, and there's nothing else in which my confidence can be based. And so we approach the Lord's table with that spirit, abject humility, confessing my sin, praying for God to reveal and expose those sins in my life, causing me to see the wonder of what Jesus has done for me, the atonement that he made in my place and on my behalf. And then seeing evidence in my heart, in my life, I want to do what's right in his sight. 
I want to obey all his commandments. I want to submit to his will in every area of my life. And who also earnestly desire, we read, to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. The form for the administration of the Lord's Supper states that those who purpose henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in their whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether they have laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and do firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with their neighbor. That convicts us, doesn't it? We realize how far we fall short. And we realize how desperate our need is for our Savior. This is both the test, but it's also the fruit of the former two. As we look at our sins, and as we know the wonder of Christ's work for us, this is the fruit that God works in us, that desire, that longing. We're not satisfied and content with who we are and what we've done and how we live. We want to do better. And we're sorrowful not only, but we are constantly looking to God and looking to his word. And we're not going to rest until we're finally completely delivered from this body of corruption. True sorrow for sin, rooted in the love of God. And that love of God showing itself in a love for our brothers and sisters whom God has put on our pathway. It's impossible for those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith that they should not bring forth fruit of thankfulness. And we see that gratitude and we see that thankfulness and we rejoice. We know it's not of me. It's all of God. It's the wonder by which he's taken me and united me to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And that my union to Jesus Christ is that which means everything to me. I cannot live apart from him. I live unto him in all that I do and in all that I say. And I'm thankful then for the preaching of the word. Thankful for the sacraments as they are used by God as tools to bring me to see Christ and to see the fullness of the wonder of that spiritual union that is mine with him, that I might rejoice in that union and live out of him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen our faith that we not cling to the outward external bread and wine, but that we cling to Christ, that we know the wonder of that union the joy of faith, and that we might live out of that faith and show forth thy praise. And we thank thee for thy word. May we love that word. May we live in the wonder and the enjoyment of it. And especially, Lord, we pray, strengthen our faith. We are weak. We thank thee for the means that thou hast ordained and cause that together we might go forward as those who confess Jesus Christ as our life. Amen.